Father God, you've brought us here today so that we would hear your voice, not my voice, not the voice of a man, not an opinion of a man, so that you, we would hear your voice. And today, the text that we're looking at today, Father, goes even deeper than that. We want to hear your heart, what your desire is for our family, for this family of faith that you've gathered together, this body of believers who loves you, and we need to hear from you today, Father. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear from you today, me especially, and grant to us an understanding that isn't simply lip service, Father, but that um, responds to your word with obedient faithfulness to what you've called us into. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the last two weeks, we have been navigating our way through the pillars of risen hope. If you've been here, uh, week one was uh, the centrality of Christ, the centrality of Jesus Christ, what he means to this church. And week two was, last week was the sufficiency of scripture. We have four pillars, so we are now passing the halfway point. And this week's focus is something we call the family of faith. And when I thought about um, that phrase, family of faith, I I realized that for folks, especially folks who are new, that may not be immediately apparent what that means. What does family of faith mean? So um, I thought I'd answer that question. This is what family of faith means in our context and what the pillar means. That God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, when he considers his people who he's bought with his own blood, those he's redeemed, he does not mainly consider us or characterize that relationship as creator-creature or judge-defendant. He doesn't mainly characterize that as master-servant, though all of those paradigms are from Scripture. When he thinks of his people, he mainly sees that relationship as father-son, father-daughter. That's mainly how he sees us, as a family. And uh, we could spend literally hours talking about the implications of what that means Uh, But I only got a few minutes, so I'm going to use them as wisely as I can. One of the first places we see this radical sort of framework of God's definition for who we are, our relationship with him, is in John 1. Listen to this passage, John 1, 9 through 13, and how it speaks about our being children of God. It says, The true light, that's Jesus Christ, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. So John says, everyone who receives Jesus, who believes in the name of Jesus, God gives the right to become his children. 
That's the family talk that we're talking about today. They are born not of blood, not of flesh, not even of human decision-making. God did this. God made this family. And it didn't arise because of our own desire or inclination towards us. He actually subdued our desires and displayed his beauty to us in such a way that we were like, I want you to be my dad. And that's how this happened. That's what it means to be children of God. It's this instrument called faith. We are a family born out of faith. God has given us a capacity and an inclination to see Christ as Lord, as our Savior, and really as our treasure to delight in. And when this happens, it literally changes everything. Our eternity changes. We are no longer characterized as sons of disobedience, but we have become sons and daughters of the King of glory. So the question for me today, and if you've been over here the last few weeks, you've seen that we've been using the parables of Jesus to work our way through these pillars. And the question for me today was, what parable is best to help us understand what it means to be in the family of God? And there are plenty of of parables that tell us about how we're adopted and what faith looks like, about seeds being scattered and about a mustard seed being really small and growing into a massive tree. There are plenty of parables that tell us the functional aspects of how we're grafted into the family of God. But where I ended up landing, and really this text, (laughs) I couldn't escape from it. This text had a hold on me and refused to let me go to another passage And in many ways, I think it's precisely the parable we need to hear when we think about family. So with that in mind, grab your Bibles if you have them, and let's turn to Luke 15. We're going to start in verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. What we're about to read here is easily one of the most famous parables in Scripture, if not the most famous parable in Scripture. You probably already are guessing it. It's simplicity, it's relevancy, it's relatability, all of those things are part of the reason why it's well-known. But if I'm, if I'm honest with you, the main reason why this thing is well-known is because it shines a very bright light on the heart of the Father. And we see his heart very clearly in this parable. If you haven't guessed it already, this parable is called the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal son. And the reason I feel like God led me to this parable is really, really simple. Like I said, we see the Father's heart vividly in this passage. Um, We see the key to understanding his purpose, his desire for this family. This text will answer for us today, God willing, what kind of family do we belong to? What kind of family do we belong to? What drives this family? What governs our actions, this body of believers here in this room and the parts of Risen Hope that are scattered and really everybody who belongs to the family of God. What drives us if we're part of this family of faith? So without delay, let's dive in. This is a large parable. I'm going to read through it its entirety, and then we're going to look at a few key things and zero in on them. So starting with verse 11. And he said, Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly, this parable gets me every time, quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father says to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. One of the things that is important about reading any parable in Scripture is uh, to recognize that it's intended and designed to show us a few very important things. It's not intended to tell us everything about the reality we're looking at. Um, This parable isn't a kind of allegory where every single note in it means something specific. There's hidden truths that we have to unpack. Sometimes the author, and Jesus in this case, (laughs) really wants us to only get four or five things, maybe two or three things, main things. And it's dangerous because it's possible to read too much into the text. So whenever we deal with parables here, this is something you need to be aware of. Whenever you hear a parable anywhere or read it for yourself, recognize that there's a danger here to reading too much into passages and test all things and only hold fast to what is true. So with that in mind, I want to break down 
this parable again in very simple terms just to make sure we're all tracking on the same page. And then I want to drill down deep into three specific things that I see here. And my prayer is that you would see them too. So this father has two sons. The younger wants his inheritance right now. And he gets it. He takes his money, goes, and he squanders his money. He, it says in verse 30, devours it with prostitutes, which is about as vivid as it gets of a description. He gorged himself on the pleasures of the world until it was gone. The money was gone. Just like the rich man in the parable last week, only cares about himself. And when famine strikes, this young son, this young brother, is destitute. And he's a young Israelite, so keep this in mind. He's going and being forced to work with pigs, which are unclean animals. This is how far he's fallen. He desires to eat the food the pigs are eating. And when it hits him, finally, how far he's actually fallen, he reflects on this and he says, my, my father's servants have more bread than me. How is that right? And this causes him to want to repent to his father and to ask for forgiveness, ask for being grafted into the household, even if he can't be back into the family as a son. But this event is not cool with the, younger, the older brother. The older brother is not happy about this because he's been slaving over his father's fields ever since this other dude left. He is not cool with this guy coming back. And I use the word slaving deliberately, obeying every single command as though his father was chiefly an employer. He sees his younger brother come back. He sees his father's grace to his younger brother. He says, I want nothing to do with that. Nothing. I don't want anything to do with that. This younger brother took all of my father's wealth, and he, not all of it, all of the father's wealth that it was due to him, and he blew it all. And this younger, this older brother is furious at the father. And so, at the end, there's a celebration. We see this celebration is going on. The older brother has been working his butt off, has gotten nothing from his father. He hasn't even gotten a, a young goat to eat with his friends. And yet his father's asking for this older brother to come in and celebrate with us. Celebrate with us. Join us, he says to the older brother, in the singing, in the dancing. Your younger brother was dead and he's alive. And the parable ends. No resolution. Jesus doesn't actually tell us what happens. Now, if you've heard this parable before, and I'm going to guess that everyone in this room has heard this parable before, but if not, uh, there's a reason why Jesus was telling this parable. In fact, there's a reason why he told the two parables before this parable, um, and it's in Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. He says this, or uh, the context is this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. What's wrong with this guy? And Jesus looks at this grumbling 
and he is not pleased. He is not pleased. In fact, he is angry at these leaders. If people want to claim to be godly, then they need to reflect the heart of God. And that's not what's going on here. In fact, four chapters earlier, Jesus says that the Messiah came, Christ came into the world to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. That's the heart of God. That's the whole reason he came. And these three parables are telling. This is why God sent the Messiah. This is why God sent Christ. One parable talks about a lost sheep. Shepherd leads the 99, goes for the one. One parable talks about a lady cleaning the house trying to find a coin. We'll do anything to find this coin. And this parable is about a lost son. So lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. In the, in the first two parables too, Jesus is clear at the end of them what the parable means. It says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner repenting than even 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. In other words, God, who is represented as the father in the prodigal son story, is in the business of saving sinners. That's what he does. It's what he loves to do. He loves to do it. So get this. He does this for his own joy. This is his joy. That's amazing news. It's one thing to have a God who is willing to save people who are lost and dead. It's another thing to have a God who delights in saving people, who enjoys it, who bring, it brings him great joy. So the question today that I want to really be the banner over everything we look at in the prodigal son story, now that we've sort of compassed it and we have an understanding of it, is what do we learn about God's family from this story? What do we learn about, what does it mean for us if we're obedient children, if we belong to God? Uh, Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. If we want to imitate God, when we look into his heart, his passion, his desire, what is it? How does that frame our lives as a family of faith? And so, the first thing we see here that's clearly depicted in this text is the compassion of this father. His compassion. This father is a compassionate father. Look at verse 20. When the son is approaching home, look at his father's response. It says in Luke 15, 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So please don't miss this. This verse is so huge. It says, while he was a long way off, he hadn't even repented yet. He hadn't even said a word to his father. He's still a long way off. And in the distance, the father sees him. Sees him. Do you remember the day when the father saw you? Do you remember when he saw you? If your faith is in Christ Jesus, 
there was a moment, whether you were 6 or 16 or whether it happened last year, there was a moment when you could see clearly that God was looking into your soul in that moment. And He saw you. Everything about you. He saw you. You were still far off, but He saw you. Romans 5.8 says this. God shows His love for us. This is God showing His love. How does He show His love? He shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. All the way into our sin. That's where he went. He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. This is the best news in the world, that God can see you when you're far off, while we were still sinners. And this seeing is, leads to something huge. Can we go back to the 1520 text? It says that when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. So God in his seeing isn't just observing casually. He feels compassion. Somehow, despite his impassibility, despite his immutability, these aspects of God's character that cause him to be who he is, ultimately, unchanging, he still feels real compassion for broken and weary people who are sinners who squandered everything. He still feels compassion for them. And he feels it, get this, more deeply than we will ever feel it. That's the Father's heart for these people. That's the Father's heart for us. And note that this compassion isn't lip service. I think a lot of times, a lot of times in our own lives, we do feel compassion. We see a commercial we hear about a campaign for some giving. We feel compassion. We want to help. But it's not ever realized in actual actions. This father feels compassion and he bolts for his son. He runs. He launches into a sprint. That's what this compassion compels him to do. And so, just a sidebar, like, just that, those few words in this passage, how do they inform how we look and interact with sinners? Or how does, it look, how, does, how does it inform how we look or interact with people who are lost and who are dead in their sin? Are we running to them? Are we pursuing them? Do we see the gospel to be so good, so filled with joy that we are literally who doesn't know this news? Who doesn't know about Jesus? That we run to it. When the father reaches this, his son, you see why he ran. He wanted to do something. He doesn't stop short and say, okay, we've got to settle accounts here. How much money do you still have? He doesn't ask for anything back. He doesn't even say, listen, you need to get this figured out. You're a mess. You smell like pig food and pig feces. You need to get cleaned up. He doesn't do that. He embraces and kisses his son. Despite all of that on him. I mean, think about what he might have smelled like. If you're in the audience as Jesus is telling the story, some of these people have an idea better than we do 
what it would smell like to be in that state. And yet the father who's clean kisses the son who is unclean at this time. <clears throat> so I want to just, I want to try to visualize this because I think, like I said, this is a story for a reason. It is designed to give us an image of what this event would be like so that we can see the heart of God. Imagine the father is there on the front of his property, maybe the front deck of the home. And he sees in the distance the silhouette of his son. He knows his son because he can't forget what his son looks like, how his son walks. He sees him and he launches into a run with tears streaming down his face. When he gets to him, he clings to him, hugs him, kisses him, refuses to let him go for probably a seconds, if not minutes, because he's waited for this moment. He's wanted this moment. That's the father in this situation. That's what God is like. And so what we probably should do, thinking about that reality, is ask the question, why does the father respond like this? What, like, what is so special about this moment that he would run and do this with the younger son after everything that's happened? I mean, he took his money and wasted it. It's gone for nothing. Why this response? The father doesn't leave us wondering. He actually says it twice in this parable. Look at verse 24. It says this, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he repeats it again to the older brother in verse 32. So this is obviously important. Jesus doesn't want us to walk away from this parable and not realize what actually happened here. And it's interesting because in the parable, it seems to be that the father is the only one who actually recognizes what happened. Even the younger brother, who's experiencing this reality firsthand, wanting to repent, doesn't have a full understanding of what his state was like prior to him coming and seeing his father. The father says, my son was dead. He was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's why I'm responding this way. That's why I'm running after him. That's why I won't let go of him, and I keep on kissing him and holding him. That's why. And obviously, we have to ask the question, well, that's actually dead? He's not dead. Clearly, he's alive. He never dies in this parable, and he's not lost because he made his way home. What are you talking about? So what is the father speaking to here? The father, when he says the son was dead and the son was lost, isn't talking about mere physical, superficial reality that we see and touch in this world, which the father knows is fleeting and ephemeral and passing away. The father is talking about eternity. He's talking about the fact that his, this son was dead and separated from every single joy 
that could be experienced in his father's presence. Cleaved off from that. Physical death is nothing compared to that death. And he wasn't just physically lost, which can be fixed by just simply asking questions. He was spiritually lost. He was shrouded in so much darkness from his own sin, his own lustful desires, never to be released from them, a slave to them for his entire life, unless God opens his eyes and leads him home. And that's exactly what happened. The father sees more than anyone else why this day is special. The son just wants to come back and make things right. I screwed up. How can I fix this? And the father's like, no, you don't realize the situation. You were dead. And now you're alive because you're here with me. You were lost and now you are found. And so he says, bring the best robe. Bring a ring. Put that ring on his finger. Bring shoes for him. We are going to celebrate tonight. There will be a celebration which leads us to the second aspect of the characteristics of the Father, the second aspect of who he is, and that is his exceeding joyfulness. This Father is exceedingly joyful. He wants to celebrate this great event. It says here, verse 22, But the Father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. I love that God loves to eat. He loves that. It's a gift from him. He says, let us eat and celebrate. God is into celebration. I don't know if this passage fits in your framework for understanding who God is, we do not serve and worship a dour, boring God. He is a joyful God. He is filled to the brim with joy. There is no brim. (laughs) That's the kind of God He is. And His Son returning to Him deserves a massive celebration. Singing, dancing, whatever. All of it. This is the kind of God we have. This is our Father. There is joy, Jesus says, before the angels of God when one sinner repents. In heaven. What, so what is that like? What does that sound like when all of heaven explodes in thunderous joy because someone comes to receive Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord? as their delight. More importantly, what does it tell us about God that he's designed reality to be that way? He made heaven to respond that way. It tells us that our Father loves when sinners repent, and our Father prioritizes on exuberant joy and celebration around that sinner who repents. It is a big deal to God. So therefore, it must be a big deal to the family of faith. We must take it very seriously. Not only, not only joyful celebration in general, which is a gift from God, but the pursuit of and the desire of people being reconciled to God 
in us celebrating that. This is something we need to take very serious. Christians should be the happiest people in the world. We should be the happiest people in the world. Like the Father says in verse 32, it was fitting, it was right, it was good to celebrate and to be glad. So that's the nature and the disposition of the family of faith. But to be fair, it's not like the older son is against celebration. He clearly wants to celebrate. Verse 29 says uh, he wants to celebrate with his friends, but hasn't because his father hasn't given him a young goat, which is an interesting thing to ask for. (laughs) But apparently this is a step down from a fattened calf. And he's like, you didn't even give me one of those. And I've been here the whole time slaving my butt off for you in these fields. And you didn't even give me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friend. And then he, he appeals to the fact that he's been working his knuckles raw. And, and, and when, when, he, when, he, when he talks about his following of the Father's commands, it's important to understand he's revealing something about his heart. His goal, the older brothers, the older sons, isn't to share his father's joy. His goal is to be rewarded by his father for his own accomplishments. So think about this. That's his motivation. That's his desire. The older brother here isn't interested at all in what makes his father happy. Unless it gets him something. Unless he gets something from it. Which is scary. And the reason why it's scary is because we can do and say the right things all day long. But have a heart that does not enjoy God that does not really enjoy him for who he is. We only enjoy him for what he can give us. That's the older brother here, which means that the older brother tragically is actually more lost than the younger brother because the older brother doesn't know it. The younger brother at least can say, I'm actually wretched and wicked and I'm in a pigsty. I need to get out of here. But the older brother could go on like this for years, for his entire life. And he believes that his father owes him something. And so you almost get a picture of the days and weeks, maybe even years leading up to the younger son returning. And you get this picture, like we said earlier, (laughs) the father standing on the front, looking across the horizon. And um, he's doing this every night, maybe. Every beginning of, uh, of the day, he's looking off the horizon saying, maybe today, today's the day that my son will come back home. And this older brother is off to the side and he is fuming through gritted teeth, wanting rather for his younger brother to just simply turn up dead. I just hope we get news today that he's gone and I don't have to deal with him anymore. And the reason why it's easy for me to see, like picture that hypothetical from this parable is that this isn't the first time there's a Bible story of someone hating the compassion and mercy of the Father. This isn't the first time. There's actually plenty of them. One of them you know very well. Jonah, when he finally reaches Nineveh after all his insanity and preaches to them and the city repents, what does he want God to do? It says he pleads with God to kill him. Jonah, kill me. 
because Jonah hates Ninevites. He hates them. Listen to this passage from Jonah 4. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry when God gave the Ninevites mercy. And he prayed to the Lord Yahweh and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's horrible. Horrible. He hates the thought of God being merciful to the Ninevites. It it makes him want to vomit. He can't think of it. God's salvation, literally the beginning of this passage, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry, is literally in the Hebrew that it was exceedingly evil in the sight of Jonah, what God did. Wicked, he thought. God was being wicked in saving them which is exactly what the older brother is enraged over in the parable we're looking at today. He's looking at the father and he's saying, I knew that you would do this. I knew it. I knew that if he came back, you would do this. This kind of radical grace and love and mercy to the younger brother, to the older brother, is evil. It's evil. This joint celebration is repugnant to him, which is why he has the words that he has. It's an affront to who he is. But here's the thing. This grace, this mercy, this love is exactly how our God is. It is exactly who he is, which is why he says it is fitting for us to celebrate and be glad, even if the older brother refuses, which leads us to the third and final dimension of This parable that I think is important for us to key in on as a family of faith, the final piece. We see that the the father is a profoundly compassionate father. We see that the father is exceedingly joyful and desires to celebrate when sinners return home. What else does this tell us about the father? One thing that I see here that is critical for us to cover We see it in the father's response to the older brother who refuses to celebrate. The older brother, again, is furious. He's enraged. He's fuming. He says in verse 29, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this young son of yours who came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf from, that's his anger coming out. To which his father says in Luke 15, 31, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. That's huge. That's huge. I'm going to be honest with you. I've read this parable many, many times. I've understood this parable. I feel like in a really orthodox, exegetical understanding of it. I understood it in his context. When I studied for this sermon, when I sat down with this book in Top Pot Coffee and read that line, it hit me. Harder than it's ever hit me before. And I'm sure the people in Top Pot are very 
glad about that. I was emotionally hit by this. This is the first time that I felt this line, felt it in my soul. The father says, son, you are always with me. Always. Always. And then he follows it with all that is mine is yours. So what, what does the father mean? Why would you say this to the older son? The older son has only honored his father, and the father knows this. The, only, the older son has only honored his father in pretense to get what he wants. I wanted the young goat. It's been lip service the entire time. He's not doing it because he loves the father. If he really loved the father, he would share in the father's compassion. If he really loved the father, he would share in the celebration because he would be of the father's business. He's not. For the older son, it has always been about him. What can I get from this man? Obey the commands and get the stuff. That's what I want to do. It's always been about him. The older brother is not the victim in this parable of the younger brother's exploitation. Jonah is not the victim. The Pharisees and the scribes are not the victim. They are the reason this parable exists. And the father's response to the older son's anger reveals the son's sin. The father says, you are always with me. What does this mean to the older son? I'll tell you what it means. It means nothing to him. I'm always with you. I don't care about that. I don't want to be with you. He's not interested in his father. He only wants his father's stuff. And, and the shocking tragedy really about his story is that the treasure isn't the inheritance. It's not. The treasure is the father. That's the treasure in this story. And he says to him, you are always with me. You're with me. I'm the treasure. Why are you preoccupied with trinkets? Don't you want me? If you, if you want me, if you really do desire me, then you're going to have all of that stuff. That's not the point. The Father is the treasure. There is nothing like him in the world. God, the creator of heaven and earth who sustains everything by the word of his power. Infinite power, infinite glory. Who gives us stuff, like every smile we've had, every joy we've had, every food that we've eaten and, and enjoyed, all of that is a gift to point us back to who gave it. The treasure, God the Father. And there's nothing like him in the world. What the older son should be saying right here in response to the Father is, what have I been doing here? What have I been doing? This is what he should say. I've spent my entire life trying to get an inheritance from my Father, and what I should have been doing is loving him and delighting in him. The older brother's been so preoccupied with his father's stuff that he's forgotten that the treasure isn't in possessing these things. They mean nothing in the end. The treasure is in possessing the Father, having Him. That's what he should say. That's what the older brother should be thinking of in response to this. But we don't know how the parable ends. I mean, we don't know how the resolution of the story would be because Jesus ends the parable. And the question of how the older brother will respond is actually answered 
by the Pharisees and the scribes. In their answer to Jesus, you see, because here's the interesting thing is there's actually a third brother. There's a third brother in this story. He's not in the parable. He's the one telling the parable. And this brother, Jesus Christ, loves his father. He delights in his father. His father is his treasure. And because he does delight in his father, his heart wells up for compassion for sinners. He draws them to himself and he receives them and eats with them. And not only will he receive them, not only will he eat with them, but this brother will go to the cross for them. And the reason why he will go to the cross for them, the reason why he loves them so much to do that is because his father is his highest joy. His father is his treasure. See, these things are not disconnected. What we treasure determines how we live in this world. They're not disconnected. In fact, it's his delight in God that drives him through the agony and the torture and the humiliation, being pinned on a tree naked outside of Jerusalem. Through that and through the immeasurable agony experienced in the judgment and just wrath of the Father being borne out on him, So what kept Jesus on the tree? Why didn't he just say, you know what, this is a joke. I'm out of here. I don't need these people. What kept him on the tree? What kept his love for us saying, I'm going to stay here until it's paid, until every ounce is paid for my people? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us what kept him there. It says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what is that? Joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And guess where he is right now? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the source of all joy. Jesus faced the unspeakable trauma of death and the Father not responding to him, forsaking him for joy. For joy. That's why he did this. For the desire to celebrate the redemption of his people in the presence of his treasure, his own father. Now think about this kind of joy. Because this kind of joy is not disconnected from what we're talking about today. This is the joy the Father is inviting us into. The death of Jesus Christ secured for us freedom from every treasure in this world. We don't need those. We don't need them, good or bad. We don't need them because the greatest treasure it got for us, it secured for us, is God himself. So when you think about the early church in Acts 2 and 4, and you see these people being radically generous with their stuff, radically generous with their stuff, in providing the needs of others, like doing everything they can to fill the gaps, fill the holes. We want all of us to be together. I don't need my things. When you see people like that in the church, it's because they love God more than anything else in this world. Their treasure is in their stuff. They don't give a rip about their stuff. 
it could go, it's going to go to hell. I want God. And so what I will do is I will love and care for people as much as I physically can in this life. I will sacrifice time. I will sacrifice energy. I will sacrifice everything, money, so that people can be healed both physically and spiritually. So that people can feel the wholeness of being part of God's family. Not only in the present, but for eternity. So I love the doctrine of forgiveness of sins. I love it. I preach it to myself every day because I'm a sinner. And I find reasons to preach it to myself throughout the day. I love that doctrine. I love the promise and the hope of a painless existence in the future. A tearless eternity. But the cross bought us more than those two things. They're huge. They're massive. And we need to love them and appreciate them. The cross, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, the cross secured for you access to God as Father. And there is nothing that can compare to that. He's our Father. And He says to us, You are always with me. Always. I am yours. And you are mine. Father, son, father, daughter. Everything I have, all of it is yours. But knowing that we get him, knowing that we get him as our treasure, means that the treasures in this world don't matter ultimately. We treasure, ultimately, our Father who loves us deeply. 1 John 3 probably says this best. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 says, John, just in the middle of his letter, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He can't believe it. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And then this is where it gets wild. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And I I want as we close for us to feel the weight of this. It's it's easy for us to make this abstract. It's easy for us to make this into a fairy tale. This event is real. More real than this. It will be the most real thing you will experience. And it is your future if your faith is in Christ Jesus. One day, you will look into the face of the creator of the universe. And he will see you everything about you, every failure, every victory, every sin, every addiction, every good thing you've done, anything, all of it, he will see that and he will look into your eyes if your faith is in Jesus and he will say, I love you. I waited for this day to see you like this. I've always loved you and I want you to know this. He will tell you this. You will always be with me forever. That's not changing. 
anymore. It won't feel like you're away from me. You will be with me forever. And everything I have, all of it, is yours. But it is a mere pittance compared to him. This is what it means to be in the family of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, and I can say that and address you like that because it's true. And that's wild. That the person who spoke galaxies into existence, the person who governs every single thing in the universe, can look down on each of us individually and say, that's my son, that's my daughter, they're mine, they belong to me, my children, part of my family. And so, Father, I, I pray that in that, the truth of that reality, that we would not simply fall into complacency, fall into to weakness, Father, but that we would lean in with joy to who you are as Father and that that would set the stage for every single thing in our lives. That we would be compassionate, Father, to those who are far from you. That we would run to sinners. Say, do you know about Jesus? I want you to be in this family. That we would feel a kind of supernatural joy over people repenting whether they're believers or not, people saying, I don't want sin to separate me from God anymore. I'm tired of it. I want God, and I want to be able to say Father and mean it to him. I pray right now, Lord, that those two realities that are rooted in us treasuring you more than anything else in the world would be part of our lives, that it wouldn't be theory here. It wouldn't be a, a, a sentence on a paper but it would be a reality that we breathe, eat, sleep, and understand inside our bones, Father God. May you do this and more because you are able to do it. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ alone.